0: Jamal Khashoggi, a contributing columnist at The Washington Post, walked into the Saudi consulate in Istanbul, Turkey, on October 2nd. He did not walk out. Karen Atiyah is the Global Opinions Editor here at The Washington Post. She worked closely with Jamal during his time writing for our opinion section.
1: For me... Jamal, in particular, as far as the writers that we manage for the global opinion section, Jamal, in particular, for me, was one of the writers over the last few months that I was like, okay, I'm going to clear my workload a bit um, so that I can have more time for him. We had all these plans, and I just, I just, it's just unfair.
0: Jamal is a veteran Saudi journalist. He's a man who Karen describes as a brave writer and a huge source of knowledge.
1: Uh, Jamal, um, just one of the preeminent Saudi writers um, today. He's been known in Saudi for 30-plus years or so. Um, Very well known for being close to the Saudi royal family. He was an advisor to one of um, the intelligence officers, actually. And uh, over the years, um, turned to journalism, um, had a column, uh, had been hired and then fired from many places for his his views about pushing um, for reforms up from within the system in, in the Saudi kingdom. The relationship
0: between Jamal and the Washington Post's opinion section began when Karen sought his insight on the actions of Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman.
1: So the story goes is that uh, we were reading a lot about the crackdowns under Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman. And that he was just arresting hundreds of princes, businessmen, journalists. And we were seeing this and I was seeing that, you know, okay, this figure named Jamal Khashoggi is being quoted by everybody from The New York Times to Reuters. So obviously he's somebody who knows something. um, But I hadn't really seen any full length like op ed. Right. And so I figured, okay, well, let's try to get him to explain in a longer format, you know, what's happening. And he said, sure. Okay, we'll do it. And that piece was entitled, Saudi Arabia has been repressive, but now it's unbearable, right? And he turned in the piece and he said, you know, this is really painful for me to write. I really debated whether or not I should say it, but um, I feel I have to. And I think we just just realized, okay, here's somebody who we can turn to to kind of, you know, yes, offer critique of the very obvious, like, crackdowns and, and... um, injustices that were happening, but still someone who is not trying to bring the Saudi regime down, not someone who is, a you know, this fiery revolutionary who wanted to overturn everything. No, he wanted to work within the system. So we had a, yeah, we had a, a good relationship, although I think I could tell it was a lot. He would send me messages. Sometimes he would just say, you know, I'm, I'm sad. I'm depressed. I, I miss my family. They're pressuring my family and my children to to pressure me to get to me. News
0: that Jamal was missing came to Karen and others at the Washington Post via international contacts. Those people were pointing to an article in Arabic that quoted Jamal's fiance. In that article, she said Jamal had entered the Saudi consulate in Turkey to obtain documents that would allow the two to get married. She had waited for him for hours, but Jamal hadn't come out.
1: My first thought was... All right, this is disturbing, but knowing what he's even written about how the Saudis operate, perhaps, perhaps they're just questioning him. Perhaps they're just sort of, you know, giving him a hard time about what he's doing here, and uh, they'll just let him go. Even I, I, I had that idea for like a few days, but I think it was maybe, maybe around Thursday. So two days later, and we had we'd heard nothing. And um, that's when we started. I, I think I wrote a piece or a short blog post just sort of like you know, saying that his silence was disturbing and deafening. And I just you know, said, I hope, hope he's okay. Um, I hope you're okay if you can read this. And again, as the days went on that Saturday, hearing the leaks from Turkey that they had evidence that he had been killed, um, murdered, I just, my heart was sinking. <laughs> I think it's it's been it's it's been a slow moving nightmare in that sense not having sort of definitive proof either way, right?
0: This is Can He Do That? A podcast that explores the powers and limitations of the American presidency. I'm Allison Michaels. Jamal Khashoggi's alleged killing has created a foreign policy crisis for the Trump administration. The relationship between the United States and Saudi Arabia is a complex one. American interests in oil, arms, Middle East stability, and human rights each add a complicating dimension that have challenged American presidents for decades. For our current president, perceived conflicts of interest add even more pressure to the need for a proper response. That's why determining as much as possible about what happened or didn't happen inside a Saudi consulate, to a journalist, to a U.S. resident, it matters. At this point, what we do know is troubling.
2: Well, what we know for sure, actually, is very little, but a lot has leaked out through various channels. Essentially, what we know is on October 2nd, in the afternoon, uh, Jamal went into the Saudi consulate in Istanbul, Turkey, to retrieve a document that he needed to marry his fiancée, who's a Turkish citizen. She was waiting outside. He handed her his phones. He walked into the building. The assumption was that he would get this document and he would come back out and they would go back on their way. There is video of him going into the consulate that we have now seen, security footage. There is no record or video of him ever coming out.
0: Shane Harris is a national security reporter at The Washington Post. He's been covering Jamal's story closely.
2: What is alleged to have happened is he went in and a group of Saudi agents was waiting for him in the consulate. Turkish officials believe they intercepted him there. They may have interrogated him. It's not clear. But they believe that he was killed and that his body was then dismembered and then he was presumably either removed from the building or perhaps maybe he was buried somewhere. These individuals flew in on a private jet owned by a company that works for the Saudi government. There was another group on a second jet that also flew into Istanbul. After these men arrived at the consulate, we believe they then went in uh, cars to the consul general's house, stayed there for some time. Then everyone goes to the airport and they fly away. So it's this kind of... Operation. It sounds like something out of a spy movie, really. I mean, it, I mean, almost to the point where if you scripted it, it would sound like, ah, oh, that's too predictable. But what it really sounds like is that the Saudis you know, sent this team there to, we don't know if they meant to interrogate him or capture him or kill him, but the Turks certainly believe that he has died. And, of course, we haven't confirmed that, but he has not been heard from since October 2nd.
0: Now, why would the Saudis want to intercept him at the consulate?
2: This is a really great question. The first question is why would the Saudis want to harm him at all? I I mean, the thing to remember about Jamal Khashoggi is that you know, he's often described, I think, as a dissident journalist. But Jamal was part of the inner circle of the ruling family. He comes from an extremely prominent family in Saudi Arabia. So he was an insider. And his break came as he started being more critical of the current regime led by Mohammed bin Salman, who's the crown prince. And this is where he appears to have gotten on the wrong side of the government, and really in particular, Prince Mohammed, and then uh, eventually Jamal came came back to the, came to the United States and lived here in a self-imposed exile. So the question has been a why would the Saudi regime seek to silence someone who was really kind of one of theirs and, and wasn't agitating for a regime change. He wasn't calling for Mohammed bin Salman to be overthrown or to step down. He was writing critically and sometimes even favorably about Saudi government policy. So that's one piece. The question as to why the consulate in Istanbul is also another interesting one. We know a couple of things that might give some hint of that. We know that During the summer period, leading possibly into the fall, U.S. intelligence agencies were intercepting communications by Saudi officials talking about a plan to lure Jamal from his home in Virginia back to Saudi Arabia. And detain him there and what the intelligence shows is that this was a plan that Mohammed bin Salman himself ordered and wanted completed now Jamal did not go back to Saudi so it may be that the plan to get him back to Saudi and detain him there wasn't working and that what we saw happening at the consulate in Istanbul was kind of a plan B but there's still so much about that piece of it that we just don't understand
0: there is of course so many details we still don't know Audio recordings have emerged, though we haven't quite heard them. Does most of the information that has been reported then come from Turkish sources?
2: Yes, yeah, so the bulk of it does come from Turkish sources at this point. The investigators and then other people in the region, there is the audio recording you mentioned. No one has actually heard the audio, we believe, outside of Turkish official channels. Um, Certainly no journalists have heard it. In my own reporting, I have no reason to believe that U.S. officials have heard it either. But it's been described to officials in the United States and in other governments where the Turks say, look, we have this audio recording. It proves he was killed. It proves he was dismembered. Here's what it sounds like. Now, until that audio comes out, there's no definitive proof on that. But what's been interesting is that we're not hearing a lot of pushback about what the audio might say from U.S. and other countries' officials. They seem to be saying, well, it sounds plausible. It seems credible. There is the fact that Jamal was seen going into the building and never came out. That's a pretty definitive piece of information right there. So, But it is largely coming from the Turkish side. And it's important to note that because the Turks have a very vested interest in making the Saudis look bad. All right. Uh, that was <laughs> my
0: question. Do they have motivation to mislead? Us? They
2: absolutely do. Uh, they, you know, they might want things uh, in the way way of debt relief or other concessions from the Saudis. There could be any number of things that they want that they think this could provide leverage for. But the U.S. government, it's been very interesting. It has not, as far as we know, really listened to the audio and tried to make any kind of independent assessment of it. We're all just sort of waiting to see what the Saudis say happened, and what the Americans then say in response to what the Saudis say. The Saudis and the Turks are doing a joint investigation. I think there's some reason to think that's not a fairly, that's not a really credible one. But it is kind of a one-sided bit of information, apart from what we know about prior Saudi efforts to try and lure back Jamal, which are coming from the U.S. side.
0: Let's talk about somebody whose name you mentioned before, Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince of Saudi Arabia. Who is this man?
2: Mohammed bin Salman is the crown prince which effectively means he is the heir to the Saudi throne. So he is the next in line to be king. His father is the current king King Salman. He is 33 years old. What I know about bin Salman has largely been from my own sources in the intelligence community, who paint a picture that is very much at odds with the one we tend to see in a lot of the press today, which is that bin Salman is young, he is sort of leaning towards the West, he's a moderating force, he he wants to try to tamp down on the extremist Islam that has kind of run rampant through Saudi Arabia, he wants women to be able to drive, he's letting people go to movies. Uh, The intelligence community in this country is had a much dimmer and darker view of Bin Salman. They've seen him as somebody who is rash, uninformed, inexperienced – and ruthless. And I think that the ruthlessness really kind of came on public view when we saw the way that he rose from his ministerial position quickly through the ranks to become the crown prince. And in doing that, effectively neutralized and pushed aside many people who would have been rivals in that ascendance. So the idea that this young, brash, inexperienced young 30 something is suddenly pushing aside all of these old guard caused a lot of anxiety at the CIA and around here in Washington and other agencies as well.
0: So what do we know about his relationship to the events in Turkey?
2: So what we know comes from a few different strains of reporting. At the top level, analysts and officials I've talked to in multiple countries say it is essentially impossible that Mohammed bin Salman would not have known that this team of 15 men had gone to Istanbul to deal with Jamal Khashoggi. And there are a number of reasons why. There's the first part, which is that Nothing really happens in the Saudi government right now without Mohammed bin Salman knowing about it. He's actually quite a micromanager. But then there's other pieces of information that really do point to a connection between this event and Mohammed bin Salman. One, we know that Jamal Khashoggi was getting phone calls from a senior Saudi named Saud al Katani, who was very close to Mohammed bin Salman, who was trying to lure him back to Saudi, promising him a job, promising him security. We know that U.S. intelligence reports were picking up Saudis talking about... Mohammed bin Salman's desire, his order to lure Jamal back to Saudi Arabia. Um, We know that of the 15 people that the Turks say were part of this security team that went to Istanbul, we think at least nine of them have ties to the security services in ways that we can actually document from either our sources or their own social media profiles. One individual in particular, we were able to find his passport record maintained by the U.S. government, which shows that he was in the United States just three days before Mohammed bin Salman. Salman was here on his big national tour in the spring. And this individual also identifies online as a member of the Saudi Royal Guard. So you're seeing a lot of these different circumstantial and intelligence linkages between the plot and MBS coupled with the fact that things just don't happen at first, including something of this scale, analysts say, without Mohammed bin Salman's knowledge, or at least his understanding that something had been set in motion. They just don't find it credible that he would be ignorant of this.
0: Mohammed bin Salman is one piece of the current relationship between the U.S. and Saudi Arabia. But of course, this complicated relationship goes back decades. It's been tense far before President Trump, far before MBS. Historically, what has made the U.S.-Saudi relationship quite this complicated?
2: It's a long relationship. There are sort of some foundational components to it. One is oil. Of course. I mean, Saudi Arabia has is, is long been one of the major exporters of oil and exerts tremendous authority over the OPEC system. So the regulating the, the supply of oil, the pricing of oil. Another one is military and strategic. So Saudi Arabia is one of our key military partners in the region. It is seen as a bulwark against Iran in broad terms. Iran is its main rival in the region and the rivalry uh, and the conflict between Saudi Arabia And Iran actually explains much of the security dynamic in the region over the past many years. So they're kind of on side with us. In that sense, and obviously the relationship between the US and Iran has been pretty much, you know, in the ditch since 1979 when the Islamic Revolution happened and they took our embassy. And also, you know, within that context, many senior Saudi leaders have been educated in the West, they've lived in the United States, they've been friends of presidents, they've been here. Uh, the current foreign minister, a man named Adil Al Jaber, spent many years in Washington. He was a socialite in Washington. People knew him, they went out, they partied with him. These are people who really have a long history of being in the United States and the Saudi royal family and the government in particular has these very close personal connections that are also rooted in these economic and security interests that we've had. And, and that kind of gets you to the moment where we're in now, where it's not just that this administration has close ties to the Saudis, Every administration has had some level of close ties to the Saudis. But they sort of wax and wane in the level of tension.
0: Saudi Arabia is a place with a history of human rights violations. Yet, as you mentioned, we have many, many interests, both in that country and in the region, for which Saudis are an important partner. How have past presidents managed this relationship?
2: Well, I think that it's all been largely dependent on two two main factors. One is there's this sort of at-base Economic, energy, and security relationship that kind of forms the foundation, but then there have been moments of crisis and opportunity that have depend,ed have have changed how we interact with them. So, you know, when we've been fighting wars in Iraq, obviously the Saudis have become very valuable. That relationship kind of gets closer. But I, I think that really, broadly speaking, I'm not sure any president has done a really credible job of really challenging the Saudis on their human rights record. It tends to be something that we just accept, I think. Uh, that may be unfair to some administrations. They might think that they push them in ways, but we have not really mounted an effort, I think, to try and force the Saudis you know, to be more liberal in their policies towards women, for instance. Right,
0: beyond some critical rhetoric, perhaps. It's
2: critical rhetoric and saying it's important. And look, there have been definitely frosty periods of the relationship. It was, it was the case, I think, with President Obama And his administration. But I think this also is one reason why when Mohammed bin Salman did start implementing these reforms, people in the American government said, wow, this could really be an opening. This could be somebody that we can work with. And that's why he's he's really been the beneficiary of a lot of that hopeful optimism about what Saudi could be.
0: An example of this complicated relationship playing out in real time right now is this $100 million payment made from Saudi Arabia to the United States on Tuesday. And that's the same day that Secretary of State Pompeo was in Riyadh. Saudi Arabia back in August did, in fact, pledge this money to the U.S. to help with our efforts in Syria. But is there any reason to question the timing of this payment?
2: Yeah, I mean, I I tend to believe that there aren't really any coincidences in foreign policy. (laughs) Um, So, no, I don't think there are any coincidences in foreign policy. I think that officials I've been talking to and analysts in a number of countries, what they see now is the administration, the Trump administration and the Saudis looking for some mutually agreeable way to get out of this mess to find an explanation for what happened that deflects blame from the Crown Prince, Mohammed bin Salman. And we're already seeing this taking shape. I mean, you saw the president come out the other day after talking to King Salman, MBS's father, and saying, well, I don't know, we're gonna see what happens, it might be rogue killers. Uh, which was interesting because at that point the Saudis hadn't said Anything about what they thought happened to Jamal? They said we don't know where he is. We thought he left. So suddenly, the president's talking to the king, and now he's floating a rogue killer's idea. We know from our own reporting, the Saudis were already preparing this line uh, and trying, looking for a way to sort of float that balloon and eventually make a statement that blamed this on somebody else other than the crown prince. So. I think what you're seeing with this $100 million payment is one of the sort of gears clicking into place for ultimately what the resolution of this crisis is going to look like. Uh, And yes, they owed us the money, but I suppose it's a uh, convenient time as ever to go ahead and and pay us that.
0: How has Trump been reacting to the alleged events in Turkey? and, And how does it compare to how experts might expect a president to react under these circumstances?
2: So I think that most people would say that the position from the president needs not to be one of simply taking the Saudi's word for it and standing by them, but demanding a credible, independent investigation as to what really happened and then taking some appropriate measure. And I think they would also say the response should not be coming up with scenarios like rogue killers before we have all the facts. Um, we still don't know exactly what happened. There's been a lot that's been improvisational about the president's response to this. But the experts, I think, see him going in the direction of trying to get in front of this to give cover to the Saudis. You know, we know that Jared talked to Mohammed bin Salman in recent days. They put that out and said he demanded transparency. But then the president comes out and seems to be giving cover the Saudis by saying, "Well, you know, maybe it's drug killers." You know, the king gave me a very strong denial. I've, t- you know, I've talked to the crown prince. He strongly denies anything about this. I mean, essentially, he's coming out and he's in a way, vouching for them, vouching both for their character and their denials and vouching to some extent to the information that they're for the information they're telling him when we don't really have any independent analysis our own government of that. It was fascinating. We had an interview uh, this week with Rudy Giuliani, the president's personal lawyer and advisor, who told us on the record that more than a week ago, most people in the White House he talked to had just, just had already concluded the Saudis were responsible. So what we're seeing is the president being at odds, I think, from what most people and his national security establishment think happened. And what frankly what most observers think happened, we can all see the tape of Jamal going in and we know he didn't come out. So this is again an instance where the president is on a different side of this argument than many of his advisors and his top officials and what this you know leads back to is this question of does the president side with people who he thinks are friendly to him or who are loyal to him or who are going to do him favors
0: so what do we know about president trump's business interests with the saudis
2: well what he says is that he has no business interest in saudi arabia which might be true but it's not the case that saudis have no business interests in him they've they've bought his condos we know that saudi officials stay at his hotels when they travel to the united states There's also other interesting sort of pieces, not directly about Saudi, but a little bit around the perimeter of this. So we reported several months ago at The Post that the U.S. intelligence community had intercepted officials in different uh, foreign capitals talking about... How they could exert influence over Jared Kushner because they thought that he was naive on foreign policy and inexperienced, and also he was having financial difficulties of his own. Saudis, we don't think, were among the people heard talking about that, but officials in the United Arab Emirates were, and the UAE is an extremely close ally to Saudi Arabia. In fact, the leader of the UAE is seen as a mentor to Mohammed bin Salman in Saudi Arabia. So that at least tells you that in the region and in these places that are close to the Saudis there are people talking about how they can ha- exert financial leverage to get policy gains that are favorable to them over Jared Kushner now he forcefully pushes back against any of that he has consistently said that his business interests and the national interest are, are not in conflict with one another but this in and itself is an old story now for the Trump administration we've just never had a president you know who we had to question whether or not he was you know, literally making decisions in the moment of a crisis like this one with Saudi Arabia because he doesn't want to anger the government of Saudi Arabia that stays in his hotels. And to be clear, like, we don't have any evidence that that's why he's making the decisions. But we are having to ask that because there's a credible reason to believe that could be a conflict.
0: Yet it's not illegal for him to host those Saudis in his hotels.
2: Well, there's a question about that. So there's a question some people say whether this would violate the Emoluments Clause of the Constitution, which basically says that, you know, a government official can't take gifts from, from a, a foreign government. So the question would be there whether or not Saudi government officials staying in his hotel is an emolument. And that's something that courts would have to decide. But, uh, you know, I think there's probably a lot of leeway that's given to presidents, uh, you know, in terms of how they interact with foreign governments. But we've never had a president who owns a hotel chain where foreign officials book rooms at it.
0: So then in summary, taking into account these conflicts of interest and our very complicated relationship with Saudi Arabia, Trump said on Thursday that it appears Jamal Khashoggi is dead. And if it was, in fact, Saudi Arabia who's responsible for it, the consequences would be, quote, very severe. What might very severe consequences look like in this case?
2: We wouldn't cut ties. Um, the, the, there's too much at stake in the region from the security and the economic standpoint. There are things that we could do, certainly, to punish them. We could do sanctions. That might be a bit extreme. We could um, decide to scale back on the amount of military hardware that we're going to sell them. President Trump has sort of nixed that idea because he's been saying, essentially, that it's too important to our own economy to continue selling them weapons. There are certainly other you know, diplomatic kind of leverages that we could push against them. But that's not to say any of this would be easy. It will not come without cost. And that's actually what makes, from a foreign policy perspective, this such a delicate and problematic situation, because on the one hand, the United States wants to send a clear message that to a regime that you, you can't kill people with impunity like this, you can't attack journalists, and Jamal Khashoggi was a legal resident of the United States. On the other, it seems highly unlikely that we would blow up the entire relationship with the Saudis just based on this one incident, as horrific as it is.
0: So then in the meantime, what can Trump do right now to satisfy those who are critical of his approach?
2: I think what he could do, and maybe in sequence, would be to say to the Turkish government, OK, we want to hear this audio. And if you have video, we want to hear it. He's actually said he'd like to hear it, but he could actually forcefully say, and he could tell his intelligence director to call the Turks and say, give it to us. We need to see this. We need to independently verify it. The intelligence community could very quickly, like in a day, do an independent assessment of that and decide for themselves what they think it shows. The president could then demand a transparent investigation uh, and put pressure on it to be transparent. And he could frankly send his officials, uh, as he has Mike Pompeo, over to sit down with the Saudi government and say, we're at at an inflection point here and you guys are going to have to come clean and you're going to have to say what happened or there are going to be real consequences. Those are Very, you know, concrete, not easy, but concrete and direct steps uh, that he could do. This is a – as much as this is a ballooned into a foreign policy crisis, this is a discrete episode. And usually what happens around these is you start to put a process in place because it's, you know, through process (laughs) that we have rigor and we have transparency and we have checks and we give people assurances and we have credibility. Uh, And the president's being very improvisational about this, but there are absolutely things that he could do. And they don't necessarily just involve saying, well, I talked to King Salman and he says they didn't do it. So I guess that's it. Um, That's that's not a credible investigation. Nobody believes that's credible.
0: In Thursday's opinion section of the newspaper, The Washington Post published a final column from Jamal Khashoggi. Karen Atia received the column from Jamal's translator and assistant the day after Jamal was reported missing in Istanbul.
1: Yeah, so this column was about the Arab world's need for freedom of expression, particularly for for journalists. And uh, he recounted his friends uh, in, in Saudi Arabia who had been um, jailed for, for appearing to criticize the Saudi authorities. Al-Masri al-Yum and the newspaper in Egypt that had been, um, that the government seized their print run. And he's just like, these things happen and people just seem to, you know, ho and hum and accept it and, and turn the other way. And so it was really kind of a clarion call for you know independent platforms for these voices that didn 't have a don 't have a home a journalistic home anymore in in the Middle East. What would you like to see come from all of this um so what i 'd hope first of all, i'd hope that this is an, an opportunity for people to learn about Jamal to learn about what he was fighting for, which was more freedom both politically and journalistically in the Arab world and if anything the people maybe who tried to silence him have only elevated his work and his ideas and you can't kill his ideas, right?
0: This has been another episode of Can He Do That? As always, if you liked it, please leave us a review, share it with your friends, post it on social media, and come back to listen again next week. For more developments in Jamal Khashoggi's story, visit WashingtonPost.com. Can He Do That? is a team effort here at The Post. It's produced by the charming Carol Alderman with design help from Kat Rudell Brooks, logo art from Loren Boglio, and theme music by Ted Muldoon.